Hi, this is Sarah McCaslin with Forgotten Sheep Podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about a Nazarene preacher by the name of D.C. Van Slyke. Now, just to give you a little context, he was raised in church and saved as a child, but he fell into drinking and then a morphine addiction. And when everything in his whole life seemed completely hopeless, he turned to the Lord and he was miraculously delivered. And he became a Nazarene evangelist and remained free of that addiction for the rest of his life. And so I want to share this story with you. I originally ran across it um, as a PDF book called The, uh, the Whale of a Drug Addict. Uh, I got it as a PDF. I later was able to find a hard copy of it. And I read his story, and it is such a faith-building story. So that's who we're going to be talking about, D.C. Van Slyke. All right, so let's talk about these early years. Now, I was never able to find out what D.C. stands for, but I'm pretty sure the first name is Delavan, that was the name of his dad. So, D.C. was born in Elmore, Minnesota on January 15th of 1898. His parents were Delavan, D-E-L-E-V-A-N-A, and Maud E. Van Slyke. Now, his mother passed away when he was just two years old. And I can't imagine losing your mom that young. But his maternal grandmother stepped in and acted as his mom. That was Mrs. August MacArthur, so she took over raising him when his mom passed away. Now, he was raised in a very Christian home. His grandmother was a free Methodist preacher and raised him to know the Lord. So, as the Bible would put it, he was brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, he said her only fault, the only fault of his grandmother was an unwillingness to discipline him as she should have. Now, that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. That's, that's kind of cute, isn't it? And he absolutely adored her. He thought she was just the most wonderful thing in the whole world and loved her dearly. Now, from the time he was young, his grandmother told him that someday he was going to grow up and be a preacher. And when he was about nine years old, uh, they were living in Fremont, California. So, remember, he was... Uh, he was born in uh, Elmore, Minnesota, so by this time, they're in Fremont, California. And he was uh, going to go hunt birds. He loved to hunt birds with a slingshot. So, one afternoon, as he often did, he took his slingshot and headed out to hunt birds. So, for some reason, which he could not explain, young D.C. felt a strong urge that he needed to pray. And he obeyed that urge. And you know, that's something a lot of us grown-ups could learn from. So he obeyed that urge, and he said that after just a few words, it was as if heaven opened up to him. And he just prayed at the top of his voice and began to really make some commitments to the Lord that were appropriate for his age. And I think it's neat that the Lord deals with us according to the age we are. We can be saved as a little kid, and the Lord will deal with us as a child. But as we grow older, the Lord's dealings with us also mature. So he prayed. Uh, 
as they say, he prayed through and then he ran home to his grandmother. But first of all, before he made it all the way home, he decided to, well, after he made it home, he decided to lay down on his bed for a while and just enjoy the presence of the Lord. And uh, that's when he heard one of the neighbors come to the door and he could overhear the man speaking with his grandmother and apparently this man had witnessed D.C. praying and was very impressed. And he told D.C.'s grandmother, such praying I have never heard and on his face was a heavenly light. It was a light like I've never seen depicted on a human face before. And so I can't imagine what impact that must have had on that gentleman out there in the woods hearing this this young boy praying and seeing a light on his face. And, you know, that's interesting. That's something my great-grandmother, my grandma Blassingame, uh, used to talk about a lot in the Nazarene meetings around, I would say, the 19, in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, in the revival meetings that were taking place in northeast Texas in the Sherman-Denton area. She said that people would be in those services and they would be praying and praising the Lord and their faces, it was like their faces would glow. I think that's awfully neat. That's what this gentleman saw on young D.C. So, after that experience, D.C. felt like he was called to preach. Now, when he turned 13, he had turned back from the Lord. Again, that's not uncommon with teenagers and honestly it's not uncommon with adults either but that didn't last very long however because he turned his heart back to the Lord in a revival meeting and the change in him was so real his teacher wanted his grandmother to tell her what had happened apparently he had become very difficult in school misbehaving causing problems causing disruptions and after the revival, after he had turned back to the Lord, his behavior in, so, in school was so markedly changed that his teacher, his teacher wanted to know what on earth had happened and went to talk to his grandmother. Now, I would say that is true evidence of the Lord working in a young person's heart. And I do dwell on it a lot about how the Lord will deal with young people just as he deals with older people. You don't have to be a grown-up. You don't have to be an adult to serve the Lord. You don't have to be over 18 to get saved. No matter your age, whether you're young or whether you're elderly, you can turn to the Lord. So he had a very solid relationship, a very definite work of the Lord going on in his heart and life, even as a very young man. So, as a young man entering adulthood, D.C. had a lot of youthful aspirations. He had big plans for himself. First of all, he wanted to be a bronco buster. But you can't be a bronco buster when you can only ride the horse as long as you can stay on it easily. So, apparently he was not called to be a Bronco Buster, so he left that aside. And then he decided he wanted to be a professional baseball player. That didn't work out either. So his next goal was to be a welterweight boxing champion. And as you might suspect by this time, D.C. had turned back from wanting, from being a preacher, from feeling that call to be a preacher. He was actively rejecting it. So, 
Not that there's anything wrong with any of these jobs that he wanted to do. Well, his next goal, as I just said, was to be a welterweight boxing champion. And he worked hard and he trained hard. But by this time, he'd started smoking and drinking very heavily. And that made it real difficult to be a successful boxer. And so being a boxing champion, that didn't work out either. One thing he did know was that absolutely unequivocally, he did not want to be a preacher. And during this time, as you probably can suspect by the heavy drinking, D.C. began to drift further and further away from the Lord. Now, apparently he's making some bad decisions with this, but in the midst of these bad decisions, he makes a very good decision. He marries a young lady by the name of Vera Conklin. And I tell you what, she was truly a good helpmeet for him. She stayed with him through everything. She stayed with him when he was young and just starting to get ha starting to have problems with uh, alcoholism and all of that. She stayed with him through the horrors of his morphine addiction, and she stayed with him when he came back to the Lord. She was there by his side when he was fighting that addiction, and she was with him through to the very end. So she and D.C. loved each other, and she loved him not with that romantic, necessarily that romantic kind of love, but with that love that makes a true, solid commitment to another human being. That's what, the, that's what they had. I think that's neat, and I think it's neat that he landed himself a good woman like that. So she prayed for him when he, she was his support, and later on when he turns back to the Lord, she encourages him, and supports him in that also. So he gets married to Vera, and he gets some good steady work. He gets a job working on the railroad. He becomes he becomes a railroad brakeman. And I have to say that kind of slowly because uh, it's hard for me as a Texan to get that word out clearly. So he was a railroad brakeman in Los Angeles. And this was really hard, dangerous work. If you go online and Google pictures of railroad brakemen from the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, you'll see that they were working on top of the train. And that means they were exposed to all kinds of weather. Burning heat, snow, ice, sleet, all of that. And remember, even though he worked out of Los Angeles, those trains went all over the country. Also, in doing their work, they were perched on top of the railroad cars, which was dangerous in and of itself. And tightening or uh, actuating the brakes took a lot of strength. But that's what he did. It was hard, dangerous work, but D.C. was good at it. And he held that job for five years, and for five years managed to keep it secret that he was drinking because they didn't allow uh, people that were drinking to have that position as a brakeman. Um, the consequences of making a mistake are so great with railroads, even to this day, with trains and railroads, that you just don't want to take chances with people's safety. Now, during those five years, he and Vera also had kiddos. They had three children. Now, he got found out 
for drinking. So here's what happened. Um, he got involved in a brawl. And then he and a friend, let me start that over. He and a friend went out, partied, and they got drunk. They got very drunk. And they decided it would be fun, for some reason or another, to steal a car. Then they got into a brawl after they stole the car, and they got put uh, in jail. They got arrested. Now, D.C. said it was an act of providence. It was the mercy of God that the charges were dropped, or he would have ended up going to prison for stealing a car. Now, even though this should have been a red flag to him that it was time to change his ways, he continued his drinking, his smoking, and his gambling. And how many times have we in our lives, we have seen what is definitely a red flag that says, you do not need to continue on this path. You are going in the wrong direction, and we ignore it. But thank the Lord for his mercy, that he doesn't throw us away when we ignore the red flags. But he'll still be there for us when we're ready to turn to him. He'll still, he doesn't give up on us. He doesn't throw us away. He doesn't mark us hopeless or useless. As we will definitely see is the case with D.C. So, D.C. continued his drinking and his smoking and his gambling. And his job sent him to the Mexicali Calexico, to Mexicali Calexico on the Mexican border. Now, at this time, the U.S. was still under prohibition, but Mexicali, the Mexican, the, yeah, the Mexican side of Mexicali, Calexico, was in Mexico. So there, alcohol flowed freely, and there was extensive gambling, prostitution, and drugs. And at this point, D.C. looks at this situation, and he says, yeah, I can't, I can't stay here. This, this is not going to work. So the second red flag that the Lord threw up, D.C. heeded. And I'm glad when the Lord throws up multiple red flags. Okay? So he ignored the first one. The Lord flew, threw up another one. And he's like, yep, this is not a good place for me to stay. So D.C. decided he was going to try to quit drinking. The problem is, as is the case with many who are struggling with a besetting sin, Whenever he would try to break free, someone would come along and draw him back. Now, I have no doubt that Satan was influencing that. And you don't have to be a Christian to be the target of Satan's attacks. So this is true. This is why you see this. Anytime someone is struggling with an addiction or a besetting sin, the devil will send someone, somehow, to try to lure them back in. Now, D.C. was not happy with his life. And as you, if you read his book, his biography, he completely vouches for the scripture that says the way of the transgressor is hard. He said it was very hard. Now, I'd like to make a comment on this. My grandmother, you know, I mentioned earlier, she was in the Nazarene church and was involved in a lot of the revivals that took place in the Sherman Denton area in the um, 
1920s, 1930s. Well, um, as Grandma got older, she would go to church and people would do would give their testimonies. And people would just say, talk about what a horrible time they were having. And yes, Christians do have a horrible time. And all these bad things that were happening. And it just seemed like people were dwelling on the negative. And people would leave that testimony meeting not feeling encouraged, but feeling discouraged. And that's not what's supposed to be the fruit of a Christian testimony meeting. And so she made a comment. Mind you, by this time, she was a little old lady probably five feet tall, stood up and reminded the congregation that the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard, not the way of the Christian. Yes, Christians face all kinds of trials and tribulations, but we have a hope in Jesus Christ. So that quick comment on the way of the transgressor being hard. Now, as you probably know, D.C. did lose his Breckman job when they found, his company found out about his excessive drinking. And so, without that job, this being Prohibition era, he turned to bootlegging alcohol. Now, I can only imagine how upset his grandmother was. She may have already passed away by this time. But that had to upset her. And in D.C., he kept getting arrested and put in jail for a short while, getting out and doing the same thing over and over and over again. One of his friends actually told him he was doing a life prison term on the installment plan a few months at a time. So D.C. decided, well, maybe bootlegging wasn't the best choice for him. He decides to try something else. And again, this is one of his bad decisions. D.C. tries his hand at gambling and cheating with a cold deck. Now, the guy who had been training him was actually setting him up to use as a scapegoat when something went wrong. And D.C. said he was caught. Um, even after he quit working with this guy, he went off to go on his own and work, and he kept getting caught because he was drinking too much, and he was too intoxicated to pull off the cheat cleanly without being noticed. So, one thing after another, and then he enters, encounters his first, uh, first time using morphine. So, here's how DC became addicted to morphine. He develops stomach problems. He goes to the doctor, and they discover that he is hemorrhaging from the stomach. I cannot imagine. That is serious. So they go in, they do major surgery on him. In order to treat the pain after surgery, they gave him morphine. There weren't a lot of drugs to choose from at that time, 1920s, 1930s. So DC, who, remind, who mind you, is very much wanting to be free of the alcoholism that is totally wrecking his life, notices that when he takes the morphine, he doesn't need the alcohol. So DC thinks, okay, I found a way out. I can get off the alcohol by just taking morphine long enough to get free of the alcohol addiction. I'll only take the morphine long enough to get free of the alcohol addiction, and then I'll be free. 
I'll be able to work again. I'll be able to hold a steady job. I'll be able to support my family and be there for my wife and kids. And all of it sounded so promising. But sadly, DC could not have been more wrong. He rapidly developed a morphine addiction that made everything worse. And he would resort to anything to get morphine to support his habit. And his habit was becoming more and more expensive. Um, he would take it. If you look up online, it's really cool. You can look up online for morphine sulfate, spelled S-U-L-P-H-A-T-E. And it came in these little glass files with these tiny tablets. Now, the way that... Um, the way that DC and the other morphine addicts that he was around, the way they would take it is they would dissolve that morphine sulfate in water and inject it. And before long, the drive to find those morphine tablets took over his entire life. And it seemed that he was drifting impossibly far from the Lord. He started breaking into pharmacies to steal the morphine. He found himself under bridges, shooting up, uh, using dirty, filthy water. And it just seemed like he had drifted so far from the Lord and never be able to make his way back. Now he realized that this was a mistake. He realized he was getting addicted to the morphine and it was worse than the alcoholism. And he said that the... When he tried on his own to um, get off the morphine cold turkey, it was a hundred times worse than the DTs from alcohol. And he ended up getting arrested. The guards called a doctor to help him get off the morphine. He was in jail for 45 days, and that doctor helped him wean off the morphine. When he gets out of jail, the physical addiction was gone. His body no longer craved the morphine, but the mental addiction was still there. And it wasn't an hour after getting out of the doctor's, away from the doctor's office, that he went looking for his old connection to get morphine. And DC said he was horribly trapped in an addiction that was completely out of his control. He had lost complete control over his life. And he tried two more times to get off the morphine. One of the most heart-wrenching times was when... Well, one, once was in jail, but the most heart-wrenching time was when he was in a mental institution. Um, they said they, could, they treated morphine addicts, and so he voluntarily admitted himself to the mental institution. And, oh, he said he saw horrible things in that place. It was horrible. Uh, he talked about, he talked about seeing one of the inmates beat another one to death with a shoe until the guy's face was unrecognizable, just horror after horror. And he goes through that whole process there in the mental institution and he's talking to the doctor, and he's talking about when he gets free of the addiction, when he's cured. He prefers to being cured, and the doctor said, well, D.C., we can't cure you. 
There's no cure for morphine addiction. You'll always be addicted. That absolutely crushed him. Because he thought that he could be cured and that this man had the cure. But there was no cure. And he, he left and because he had voluntarily admitted himself. He, released, he had himself released from the mental institution. And he left that mental institution utterly and absolutely hopeless. He believed the doctor when the doctor told him there was no cure. And he said, it seemed as if the devil had totally and completely won. He said the devil had taken a young man that had been born again as a child and trapped him within a horrible addiction that the doctor said he would never be free from. And never had things seemed so hopeless before. Now, the morphine addiction stood no chance against the power of God. Now, I know that in recent years, especially with social media, people throw a lot of phrases around until certain Christian truths seem to have been reduced to cliches. God can do anything. Nothing's impossible with God. Those things are true. And guys, they're true even if we've heard them a million times. But hear me out. Hear me out. When I say that DC's morphine addiction did not stand a chance against the power of God, that is fact. And that same fact stands today for whoever's name we put in that sentence, whatever addiction, whatever bondage we put in that sentence, it stands no chance against the power of God. We're going to talk in a bit about how DC got freed from that addiction, from that horrible lifestyle that he was trapped in where he had lost complete control. But I want to make this very, very clear. The power of God that set DC free from that morphine addiction is still available. And the Bible tells us that God is no respecter of persons. If you need to be freed, if someone you know needs to be freed, that same power is available. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to set the captives free, that he came to break free bondage that would hold us. He came to free us from any addiction that would hold us. Jesus came to set us free. It is the devil, it is the enemy that puts us in bondage. Remember Jesus' words. He says, ye that labor and are heavy laden, come unto me and rest, for my burden is, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the one that has the light and easy yoke, not the devil. The devil will lie to us. And try to convince us that his way is easier. His way is uh, better. But those are lies. And if we get caught in those lies and we find ourselves trapped, Jesus Christ 
has the power to set us free from that trap. And not only does Jesus have the power to do that, Jesus longs to do that. He longs to see us free. He longs to see us overcome the powers of darkness. Never, ever forget that Jesus is on your side. D.C. felt like he had drifted impossibly far from God, but he hadn't. And if you're listening to this and you feel like you have drifted impossibly far from God, you haven't. Remember, God is everywhere. You can't escape him. You can't drift too far from him. All you can do is reject him, but you cannot escape him. So what happens is DC is sitting there and he realizes he has tried absolutely everything. He has tried. He's done everything right that you do to be free of an addiction. He's followed the rules. He's done the right things, and yet he's still bound. But then he remembered there's one thing he hadn't done. There's one thing he hadn't tried. He had tried everything except the Lord Jesus that his grandma had preached. And so D.C. talks to his wife and he and his family. They start to go to church. Now, there's no virtue in just going to church. What it did is it was an outward expression of how he was determined to seek the Lord to be free. It was his family making a stand. So it says in the Old Testament, I believe it was... Uh, I want to say it was Joshua. I might be wrong. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so DC starts going to church. And every time they gave an altar call, he went to the front. And if you're not familiar with what the term altar call means, they would give people an opportunity to come forward to be prayed for. And they had benches at the front that made it easy for you to kneel down and pray. And those benches were referred to as altars. And so every time there was an opportunity to be prayed for, D.C. would go forward to the altars and he would kneel down. He had given his heart back to the Lord. He was doing his, his best. He still was struggling with a morphine habit. And the church people knew, but this is what I love about it. They didn't reject him because he was still addicted to morphine. They didn't reject him if he came to the church service high. They didn't look sideways at him or anything like that. They kept praying for him. And also, they knew that he was seeking deliverance. And D.C. knew that he was doing the best that he could. He was obeying to the Lord to the utmost of his ability. And finally, there was a turning point. So there was a, uh, a convention being held that involved a lot of Nazarene preachers. And D.C. went and talked to them, and he told them they knew about his morphine addiction and he felt like the Lord wanted him to try going to cold turkey again well it turns out one of the preachers was definitely sympathetic with DC's situation he had a son who was an alcoholic 
and he happened to live very near the campground where they were holding this uh, convention. They were holding outdoor meetings. And so he told D.C. that he could use the cabin that he had built for his son. Now, he had done his dead-level best to make that cabin fireproof and basically indestructible because his son had gone through the DTs a lot of times, I believe, in that cabin. And so it was kind of made for somebody that was trying to get free of an addiction. And so at one of the meetings, the one of the ministers gets up and he explains to everybody DC's plight. This young man is serving the Lord, but he's bound by a morphine addiction and he is determined to get free of it once and for all. And we as Christians, we know that God has the power to set him free. But this young man, as he's going cold turkey, he's going to need a lot of prayer. And I want preachers, I want to know which of you ministers will sign up to take an hour to go pray with him so that we can cover him in prayer 24 hours a day. And so during that convention, DC went in the, he went in that cab and he told him whatever happened, don't let him out. And he goes in there and he starts the withdrawals. And it was hellish for him. Based on what he described, it was hellish. He was so sick. He was so weak. He vomited every, just horrible, horrible ordeal. But those preachers were there and their wives, Christian people were there. They were praying. He said they prayed so loud and so hard that it had to have rattled the dust in the windowsills of hell. He said they just would not let up. They prayed, they pleaded, they supported him in prayer, they rebuked the devil. They were there for him. It wasn't just, a, oh, thoughts and prayers. No, they prayed. These people got down on their knees and they empathized. They felt what he was feeling in his soul and they poured out their hearts to the Lord on his behalf. And guys, we another term that we tend to use a lot in the modern church world is community. I'll tell you what, this was community. It may have been 70 years before that became a common term in the church world. This was community. When one suffered, they all suffered. When one was in pain, they were all were in pain. When one needed deliverance, they all fought for him. And he talked about he was sitting on the bed and he wanted to go for a walk and they remembered he wasn't supposed to go out. And so they just grabbed him one, pre one person. I think it may have been one preacher under each arm and they walked him around the room. And he said that he wanted to go out on a boat. Now, mind you, his mind is also being affected his thinking abilities also being affected and he told a lot of funny stories about how they made him think he was on a boat and he said he was feeling better he was still extremely weak he said he was pale as a ghost but he said his hair and his mustache were way too long and so he asked if someone would come in and trim his mustache and trim his hair a little bit because he wanted to go to church well guys he was set free there wasn't just a single moment of deliverance. It was a struggle. It was a fight. He went through the withdrawals, but he was set free. They say, now remember, the, the mental hospital, the doctor at the mental hospital said there's no cure for a morphine addiction. You'll always be addicted to morphine. 
Well, several years after this incident, DC had to have surgery again. And guess what medicine they gave him? They gave him morphine for the pain and it made him sick as a dog. He was freed from that addiction. His body wanted no part of it. His mind wanted no part of it. He was free. So what that doctor said was impossible. Yes, to medicine at that time, it was impossible to free him of that morphine addiction. But the Lord Jesus Christ has powers that go beyond medicine. That doesn't mean that we don't try using medicine, that we don't try using what's available to us. But it does mean if that fails, it's all not lost. All hope is not lost. When everything else in this world fails, we can still look to Jesus Christ and find hope in him. And so DC was totally and completely delivered from this morphine addiction. He was set free never to desire it again. His body couldn't even handle it anymore when he had to have it for surgery. He was able to hold down a job and be the husband that he had always wanted to be to his wife, be the father that he always wanted to be to his kids. And guess what? The call to preach was still on him. And he ended up becoming a Nazarene evangelist traveling all over the United States, sharing his story of deliverance and sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the story I wanted to share with you. D.C. Van Slyke, if you're interested, you should be able to do a Google search for it and find a PDF copy of the book. Um, it's called Whale of a Drug Addict. And uh, again, this is one of my favorite stories. A lot of reasons why it's my favorite. We have a man that drifted so far from the Lord, yet he didn't drift too far to be able to turn and come back to the Lord. We have a man that's whole life had spun out of control. He was hopelessly addicted, and yet the Lord was able to set him free. We have a man that was saved as a kid, that served the Lord as a kid, drifted away, but the Lord still drew him back. So, last thing I absolutely love about this story, I at my absolute favorite part, is when all those preachers and all those Christians, they started making sure that he was covered in prayer 24-7 while he was fighting through the withdrawals cold turkey. He survived them, he lived, and he was freed. I love that kind of commitment of praying for one another, to be willing to take on another person's burdens. Sometimes our burdens get too heavy where it seems like we can't pray anymore. We don't have any emotions left. We don't have any words left. We don't have any faith left. And that's when, ideally, we have Christian friends to step in and help us. Now, if you are out there and you're in a situation where you feel like you don't have anybody to pray for you, you don't have anyone to stand in the gap for you and help you, please contact me. I will pray for you. I will help you. And I will help you seek the Lord. And finally, as I'm signing off, remember, the Lord is on your side. And you can always 
always rest assured that he is fighting with you when the enemy attacks. So this is Sarah McCaslin for Forgotten Sheep. I hope that this story has touched you or blessed you in some way. Thank you. Bye.